I'm feeling a little under the weather today, but after seeing Arizona State football practice with only 19 players on defense and seeing the Sun Devil Hoop squad win at Utah, surviving 36 free throw attempts from their opponent, I'm just going to suck it up and record the latest episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. I was living in a devil town. Didn't know what was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher Hod Rubino. In today's episode, we'll begin talking about Arizona State football, who has reached the midseason point of the spring practices, and we will note our takeaways from each and every position and what we could look forward to as the second half of those sessions begins this Tuesday. We'll then shift our attention to Arizona State basketball, another weekend, another road split for the Sun Devils, and not surprisingly, playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde again in the two-game series. We will discuss how this can affect their NCAA tournament chances as they stand today, and what we can expect from the last two regular season home games versus the Northern California programs. In our last segment, as always, we'll, we'll be devoting... It to you're the listener, answering your questions from both my premium message board, The Devil's Huddle, as well as Twitter. So let's load up on the vitamin C and get this thing rolling. So we'll begin a discussion, as always, with the quarterback competition. And not really much has changed since last time we talked. My prediction of Dylan Sterling Cole and Jenny Daniels being the two-man race that offensive coordinator Rob Likens was looking for to take place sometime during spring practice or at the end of spring practice, that prediction still holds true as we speak now. Dylan Sterling Cole continues to look the best out of all the quarterbacks out there, but Jaden Daniels is somewhat closing the gap, although I think he does he did probably more in that department in the first week of practices rather than the second week. But uh, last night on Saturday, we saw Jaden Daniels run the ball more than he did in previous sessions in the spring, and that's where his athleticism really shines. That's where you understand why he may not be like to be called a dual threat quarterback, but nonetheless, uh, he definitely personifies a lot of the traits that such a signal caller would have to begin with. In uh, Friday's session, I believe, Dylan Sterling Cole barely threw in the 11-11 segment, and, and actually more reps were given uh, to the three freshmen, and that's just another clear indicator that the coaches probably seen everything they want to see, at least at this point, from Dillian Sterling Cole, and just want to give the three freshmen more reps in the team segments to see if that separation does occur. But if there's any separation that has taken place, I would say it's between Jenny Daniels and the other two quarterbacks in order, Joey Yellen and Ethan Long. The thing with Joey Yellen is he was touted as the best pocket passer out of all the quarterbacks, whether it's returning Signal caller as the only Sterling Cole or the other two freshman quarterbacks that came with him in the same class. 
And right now, I just don't see that specific trait materializing. Now, on Friday, ironically, his parents being in attendance for the first time during spring practice, he did have his best session. Now, his body of work uh, was small because, as I mentioned, the reps on that night were more divided between the three freshman quarterbacks rather than just picking two out of the bunch and divvying up the snaps that way. So sometimes a small body of work can work in your favor, and I think in Joey Yellen's case, it did actually happen. But all in all, I felt that he definitely had his better uh, sessions in terms of uh, not looking uh, timid in the pocket, was uh, not getting flustered uh, with the rush that, w- that was thrown at him, and uh, did a really, really, really nice job with his uh, accuracy, both in intermediate routes and also deep seam passes. So that uh, definitely was a better night for Joe Yellen. Enough to close the gap between him and Jaden Daniels. At this point, I would say no. So again, the clear cut two best quarterbacks in spring to date are in this order, Dylan Sterling Cole and J.D. Daniels. Ethan Long, as we mentioned many times before, both in the podcast and our and in our spring practice reports, was going to be potentially the dark horse. But either way, somebody who the odds did not favor to be in that two-man competition when everything was said and done. And unfortunately for Long, uh, this really has hold true in ASU's first eight sessions. It was really obvious in Saturday's practice where Rob Likens was having the most one-on-one interactions, for lack of a better term, with Long compared to other three quarterbacks. Uh, There were two snaps where Long had a total miscommunication with the wide receiver, ball going one way, wide receiver going the other way. And uh, his accuracy, just in general, has been an issue. So is he capable of mounting a Taylor Kelly-like comeback circa 2012? I guess in college football, you can never say never, but right now it's really hard to see him leapfrogging both Joey Yellen and Jaden Daniels being in that two-man race, let alone overtaking Dylan Sterling Cole, who's the odds, I'm sorry, the, the odds-on favorite to win this job. So it's going to be interesting to see as we go down the stretch over here with ASU spring practices, if Dylan Sterling Cole can hold to that starting position, I predict that he can. And I think the biggest storyline will be can Joe Yellen make up some ground on Jaden Daniels or will Jaden Daniels just hold firm at that number two quarterback as spring practice concludes? As we mentioned, I think in our last podcast, will the coaches now shift the reps more towards the top two quarterbacks? And I say shift the reps, just to be clear, I'm talking about the team segments 11 and 11 because we still see the quarterbacks more or less taking even reps when it comes to the seven on seven and one on one wide receiver defensive back segments. But not that the other segments don't matter, but when it comes to the more meat and potatoes of quarterback evaluation, I think there's a very good 
amount of significance put on the team 11 11 segments and that's something to to look forward to so uh quarterback competition definitely highly anticipated when spring practice starts but right now in the midway has really really settled down and we're not seeing the fierce battles that maybe we expected to see in the first eight practices for the sun devils but we'll see if that uh, will change course in the last two weeks over here of spring practice. Let's move on to the running backs. And obviously the biggest storyline in this position was who's going to be a clear number two running back to back up, you know, Benjamin who as expected so far in spring really has not get, gotten that many reps in team segments. No need to wear down a running back that is more than proven himself let alone a running back that tallied 300 carries last season. And as we mentioned in, in our previous podcast, that is a number that Arizona State coaches definitely want to see go down in 2019 for obvious reasons. I felt that Isaiah Floyd may have had the best chance out of the bunch to be that number two running back. And so far, I think that really has come to fruition. I felt especially the last two practices, Friday and Saturday, he looked very decisive with his runs. Saturday, he did get some constructive criticism from the coaches of uh, not finishing some of his runs. But overall, I think when you talk about separation, just like we're talking about the quarterback position, Isaiah Floyd has clearly separated himself, himself from the other quarterbacks, which is uh, really, I guess, coming down to one player, which is A.J. Carter, because Paul Lucas, as we mentioned, was started out spring practice at running back and very quickly within just three, four practices actually was practicing at slot wide receiver just because of the injuries uh, to Ryan Newsom and John Humphrey, actually both, both of them recovering from injuries, I should say. So perhaps Isaiah Floyd hasn't had much competition in that vein. I did expect more from AJ Carter, if I'm being honest. But for one reason or another, Isaiah Floyd is really cruising right now, if you will, towards that backup running back position. Another thing I mentioned during, my, during the practice reports is that Isaiah Floyd, who's really your typical change of pace, third down running back, very shifty, very quick, big burst and explosiveness in his game, has really improved his strength. I mean, that guy without a shirt looks absolutely shredded. And it's one thing to have an issue of bringing down a running back just because of their sheer speed and agility. But now that when you add that physical element, and as I mentioned, Isaiah Floyd has added that in spades, that is really shown in ASU's practices. Now, granted, they're not always practicing in, practicing in full pads, so you always have to put that caveat over there. But on Friday, for example, when they did practice in full pads, I was really, really impressed by the way, not only that he ran, but also breaking tackles, getting yards after first contact, has really done a solid job over there. And I got to think that the Arizona State coaches are very pleased in their search for that number two running back to find that Isaiah Floyd 
with a year of experience under his belt. And really, it was a rocky first year with the Sun Devils. I think found his stride somewhat in the second half of the season. But first half of the season, definitely struggled, as you would expect a lot of junior college transfers. But so far in spring, really hard to complain that much, if at all, about what Isaiah Floyd has brought to the table. And if anything else, uh, A.J. Carter, who I still think carries a load of potential, is someone that you can be generally disappointed with the spring that he's had. I don't know how much I was expecting from Demetrius Flowers, who, as you may recall, is a true freshman coming off a gray shirt year. Been out of football for quite a while. I was rehabbing a serious injury that he suffered in his senior year of high school. And look, there's obviously a lot of rust to knock off the learning curve. The acclimation process is always that much sharper with a first-year player. But Demetrius Flowers has really been a disappointment. And maybe I'm sounding a little too harsh over here, but I thought that he could add the physical element that this running back group was lacking to some extent and really hasn't shown any signs of even mounting a charge on that aforementioned number two running back spot. And the last couple of sessions, he actually has been spending on muscle beach with an undisclosed injury. So at this point, it's hard to see him really making any significant contributions in the spring. Certainly, I don't see him overtaking Isaiah Floyd. I think best case scenario, he may surpass A.G. Carter on the depth chart, but I think that's something that is is a, definitely a slim, slim probability at this point, just because even when healthy, we haven't seen that much from Flowers. So looking ahead to the second half of spring practices, when it comes to the running back position, I think it's a fair assumption to make that Isaiah Floyd is going to hold on to that number two running back. And whether A.J. Carter can hold off any charge that Demetrius Flowers may present might be really the only true storyline over here. But as mentioned, Flowers, to me, is so behind the eight ball that I simply don't see that happening. A.J. Carter surpassing Isaiah Floyd is also another unlikely scenario, at least what we saw in the first eight practices. But, again, the Arizona State coaching staff wanted a capable backup to Eno Benjamin, and I think so far in spring they definitely have found that with Isaiah Floyd. One thing to mention, and I first made this note from our premium subscribers in the devil's huddle that Arizona state is seeking to add another running back in the 2019 class. It's a high school running back who at this point I cannot reveal the name just because it's a unique situation where this is a prospect where a lot of teams passed on because it was believed that his academic situation was in such dire straits that he was not going to qualify and actually go junior college route, but things have improved since then. And Arizona State, due to their due diligence, I know that's a mouthful, were able to 
really pounce on this recruit. There's a good chance they might offer him later on this week, and when they do, we can report at that point who that player is. Somebody that really has been under the radar for quite a while, so it's not going to be a recruit that's going to wow you or anything like that. But just the fact that Arizona State is actively seeking a running back just shows you perhaps maybe the level of faith that they have in any running back not named Eno Benjamin or Isaiah Floyd. And also the fact, as we mentioned, of Paul Lucas moving to slot wide receiver and perhaps staying there even when full camp starts, let alone the regular season, just depletes the numbers there at running back. And this is why Arizona State is seeking this addition. When it comes to the wide receiver group, and this is really a running theme with so many other positions for the Sun Devils right now in spring practice, the number of scholarship players participating in the full team segments is really on the low side. I mean, for example, in Saturday's practice, the starting three wide receivers were Frank Darby, Kyle Williams, and Jordan Porter. But then if you go to the second team offense, the only scholarship player was Paul Lucas. And again, this is a converted running back that's playing slot receiver just because of injuries to players that would normally assume that position. Uh, Brandon Ayuk, who has been on Muscle Beach the last uh, couple of practices, or I should say maybe just didn't participate in the team segments, really had a strong start to spring. And I think that whatever injury is ailing him in the last several days has naturally really slowed him down. Frank Darby, I thought, started out pretty strong himself, but the issues of uh, drop passes has really started to creep up in the last two sessions. Whether that's an aberration or maybe a sign of things to come remains to be seen, but not really a clean performance, if you will, by Frank Darby the last several sessions. Uh, Kyle Williams... As always, uh, doing the yeoman's work as a slot wide receiver, mainly blocking for the running backs and doing that very, very well. But I also thought that the last few practices had some nifty nifty catches there and really playing as the senior wide receiver as you would expect them to perform. But... Really, when it comes uh, to the other wide receivers, there's really not a whole lot to report. Uh, Jordan Porter, the redshirt freshman, has shown some flashes here and there. I still think that his uh, explosiveness and physical element of his game are still lacking. Something that are some those are traits that definitely can be corrected as such a young player. When we talk about the benefit of having spring practice this early in the year, having those two uninterrupted seven-week sessions of strength and conditioning. I think Jordan Porter is one of many players on this team that has to take those sessions to his full advantage and really be that player that redefines his body, if you will, when full camp starts. Because if he can add that explosiveness element to his game, if he can add a more physical element to his game with already his impressive speed, you can have one of the most 
well-rounded wide receivers on the team by far. And someone that could perhaps even challenge for a starting position, but definitely be fully comfortable entrenched in the two deep and not really worry about players coming off injuries or newcomers like Jordan Curley, Ricky Purcell coming in in the summer to really challenge him. So in terms of what to look for the rest of spring practices, when it comes to the wide receivers group uh, to see Brandon Ayuk further develop into that player that can possibly replace the production that was lost with Nikhil Harry's early departure to the NFL draft. We'd like to see more consistency from Frank Darby to see if that is something that he's able to achieve from here on out. And Jordan Porter continuing to develop as a a young wide receiver that shows more than just a few flashes here and there. And uh, Paul Lucas, is he going to do enough when spring practice concludes to really have a firm hold on that second-team slot wide receiver? Or do we feel that John Humphrey and Ryan Newsom could unseat him from that depth chart niche when fall camp starts? Moving on to tight ends. I know it's been a running theme since forever, it seems like. When are the tight ends going to get involved more in this passing offense? And I got to say that in spring practice, especially in the last week or so, we definitely see uh, Tommy Hudson and his backup, uh, Jared Bubeck, being involved more than the token one or two pass during, during team segments. And I think a lot of it is just a natural factor of having a young quarterback behind center that would want to have that safety net, that outlet pass that they can always rely on. And a tight end who is sure-handed can always provide that aerial target, if you will, for, for a signal caller. So maybe that's some of the reason why we're seeing the tight ends more involved, but I think it has been encouraging. I would also say from a run-blocking perspective, uh, just because of the spring that we've seen so far from Eno Benjamin and Isaiah Floyd, I would say that both Hudson and Bubak are doing a fine job in their run-blocking responsibilities too. So, looking forward to the second half of the of the uh, spring practice sessions. Would like to see them get even more involved uh, in, in the passing game and to see if they can help hold that consistency blocking for the running backs. Lastly, the offensive line, and uh, again, this is one another position that has been hit somewhat with, with injuries, although probably not as hard as other positions. But uh, Zach Robertson has, has been uh, absent from practice, I think, for the last three, four sessions. So Kate Cote has been replacing him. And all in all, I think we're seeing the level of uh, – performance that we expected to see from a offensive line that is nothing but seniors up there. But actually, if you're talking about both, you know, Benjamin and Isaiah Floyd having a strong spring, that's obviously functionality 
of the offensive line playing well. When you look at the second team offensive line, that's, I think, where more of the developments that you expect to see in spring are going to take place. I thought that Jared Bell is doing very well at backup center. It's obviously invaluable for him to learn from a veteran such as Cole Cabral on how to play the position. Jared Bell is some is someone, if you recall, who was an absolute workout freak before arriving at Arizona State. Definitely had a great opportunity learning from Kyle Turley, a former NFL offensive lineman, who was really complimenting his weight room regimen. And a player that maybe some expected to be more of an impact, even as a true freshman, which, albeit a rarity at offensive line, just because of Jared Bell's accolades, was somewhat expected. But all in all, I don't think it's a big surprise to see him redshirt. And now being groomed as the heir apparent at center for Cole Cabral, who's going to exhaust eligibility at the end of the 2019 season. I think that the coaching staff did a good job of identifying the position that Jared Bell can excel the most at. In terms of the other newcomers, I would say that probably Donovan West, the true freshman, is probably outperforming the other two newcomers, both Richard freshman Ralph Frias and Spencer Lavelle. I know Spencer Lavelle was injured for some of spring, so probably less opportunities to prove himself. Ralph Frias is someone who absolutely has an NFL-ready body, but in terms of really honing on and all to on all the required nuances of the position is somewhat lacking over there. And it, ha- and it has been showing, I think with Donovan West, uh, what you're seeing is an absolute mauler at guard, but somebody who's really quick on his feet. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to him down the road, having those guard pull plays, because I think he can be quite, quite a weapon in, in that area. He definitely has enough agility to execute such plays. And if you recall, a lot of times when I talk to offensive linemen recruits, they they talk about how Dave Christensen, the offensive line coach, does want linemen that are quick on their feet. I mean, sure, at the end of the day, you have to have somebody that is at least 6'5", 270, and has a frame to grow to maybe even even be heavier than that. But at the same time, I think offensive line is definitely one position on a football team that's easy to dismiss or overlook how athletic and how agile you need to be. And with this group of offensive linemen, we're definitely seeing that being more a significant factor in in their play. And I think with the upcoming recruiting classes and the latest one in 2018, we'll see that element come to light more and more. So all in all with the offensive line, like I said, uh, the starting five is pretty established. I guess maybe the only question is whether it's going to be Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller or 
Zach Robertson that's going to assume the right tackle position, but uh, the left tackle right now looks like it's Roy Hemsley, the uh, transfer from USC, who came over here with two years of eligibility, played pretty well in 2018, but 2019 just looks to be more comfortable, more established. But uh, don't forget that there's a very good chance, if not a near guarantee, that Arizona State is going to add two offensive linemen transfers later on in the spring when attrition takes place with other teams around the country who are starting the spring practice later than Arizona State. So that's something you definitely want to look look forward to. It's something I think I mentioned in my podcast in the past, but I definitely mentioned in my premium message board devil's huddle is that Arizona state has to be very careful about which offensive lineman transfers they are going to add to the program because with five seniors to add a graduate transfer, that's eligible immediately and only has one year of eligibility left would probably be counterproductive because I think by and large, this offensive line coach staff is content with who they have as starters and any transfers they want to add is really going to be for the 2020 season. Because basically, when you look at the second team offensive line that practiced yesterday, you have Richard freshman, true freshman, Richard freshman, walk-on, Richard freshman. So it's imperative that Arizona State for the 2020 season add some experience to it. So even if an offensive lineman transfer has to sit out a year, that's perfectly okay in terms of what Arizona State needs. So that's a snapshot of how the various positions on offense are doing. Now, let's shift our attention to the defensive side of the ball. As I mentioned in my opening segment, thin, thin numbers for the ASU defense during spring ball. A lot of the player departures that took place over the last several weeks have been on defense. But now that you add a lot of players sitting out the various sessions due to their respective injuries, it really has been quite interesting to see so many walk-ons or reserves playing prominent spots for the Arizona State defense. When you started the defensive line, I know we talked about this before, you basically have five defensive linemen, four of them healthy. George Lee has been absent from the team segments in the last couple of practices. So it's really, really hard to get any kind of read on the defensive line. And by the way, one of the players practicing there, Corey Stevens, is a converted offensive lineman. This is why we've been seeing a lot of two down linemen formations during the team segments. Now, Danny Gonzalez was asked about that, and he said that that's cer- certainly a look that we could see during the 2019 season. And obviously, there are linebackers that are joining those two players on the line of scrimmage. But nonetheless, 
a very unique look, something that's anything but commonplace in college football. But with Arizona State, it's really done out of necessity to compensate for the low numbers over here. Just overall, I think that the two most experienced linemen here that have been healthy throughout spring, Jermaine Lole and Shannon Foreman, have been playing well. As mentioned earlier when I talked about the offense, I don't feel the defensive line is getting a whole lot of push up front, which in turn is producing some very nice runs by the Arizona State Bowl carriers. But in terms of pressure on the quarterback, I think it's been adequate for the most part. I think that the quote-unquote sacks that you're seeing in practice right now, because obviously it's not full contact throwing a quarterback to the ground, are really coming more from the linebackers, maybe even the safeties, rather than the defensive linemen. But again, I think under the circumstances, it's pretty natural to see that. Moving forward in spring practice, it's really hard to say what you'd be looking from this position other than really what's going to take place at fall camp when the cavalry is going to be on its way and you're going to have two players joining as true freshmen, Stephon Wright and Amiri Johnson, DJ Davidson, who uh, missed all spring and has been and has been in a booth that she only took off actually yesterday. Might be able to do some limited work towards the very end of spring practice, but that's another player that you're, get, you're getting back in fall camp. And Arizona State has been uh, heavily recruiting a junior college transfer whose name is going to come to the surface here pretty soon. Might even commit after concluding his official visit today, Sunday, at Arizona State. So that's another addition over there. So, again, it's a position that really hard to evaluate because of the thin numbers there and having converted players from offense participating as well. But I think that the increased reps that all these linemen are getting should, in theory, make them better in the long run. When it comes to linebackers, uh, we also know that some injuries affecting this group over here with uh, Tyler Johnson and Stanley Lambert, who are going to be out for all the spring. Merlin Robertson, the freshman sensation from last year, has missed the last two, three practices uh, with his own undisclosed injury. Darian Butler, another linebacker, had a very good freshman year, was not participating in team, seg team segments yesterday, but has been doing well when he was fully participating. But that has really allowed some reserve players that maybe didn't expect to shine this early in the spring actually being uh, very encouraging with the performance. Kalen Kirsten Thomas is probably standing out the most. Now, obviously, being a senior, that's not a huge surprise, but Kirsten Thomas has been a player that really got lost somewhat in the depth chart time and time again. Whether it's playing behind upperclassmen at the time, such as Christian Sam and DJ Calhoun, or just having talented freshmen come in last year in Marilyn Robinson and Darren Butler. But even in the bowl game, when Merlin 
was Wendell Robinson was absent, I think that gave Kirsten Thomas an, an opportunity to play well in that contest. The contest that really didn't have many bright spots to begin with. And in spring, I, I think we're seeing him take that additional step and really establishing himself. Kyle Soley, and I think we mentioned him on our last podcast, a linebacker that both defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez and linebackers coach Antonio Pierce have no problem admitting that probably doesn't get as much accolades as he should be getting. I think he's turning in a solid spring, really establishing himself in the two deep and very curious to see his development for the rest of spring practice as well as fall camp later in August. Uh, Case Hatch, who prepped here locally at Gilbert Perry, went on a, a two-year LDS mission. Somebody who Gonzalez was pretty excited to see in the spring and has been uh, has been ger- has, has generally been been one of the more pleasing players to watch on defense, and somebody who can be just a solid two deep player for the Sun Devils moving forward. When you look at the uh, quarterbacks group, I mean, not not a lot really has changed since we last spoke. Chase Lucas came back uh, only this past Tuesday and I think had a very, very strong start and maybe a little surprising after being a week off and really showing <clears throat> no rust or anything like that, performing well. Kobe Williams, I said it before, I'll say it again, absolute rock there in the, in the defensive backfield and playing as well as you expect him to be. Demarcus Davis is somebody who had some pop in circumstances coming into spring practice. And when Chase Lucas was absent for that first week, I thought didn't do good enough a job to really assert himself. Now, when the season starts, I expect him to be on the second team. I don't expect him to be out of the rotation by any means, but it's been a very pedestrian, I would say, spring practice for Tamarcus Davis. I don't think I've seen too many great plays out of him. I don't see a player that many thought could challenge Chase Lucas. But uh, whether that changes uh, later on in the spring uh, re- re- remains to be seen. Uh, Taryn Adams, you know, has been just okay. Can't say I've seen anything outstanding or extremely negative from him. So really the only storyline moving forward in spring practice to see if Tamarcus Davis can indeed mount that serious challenge to unseat Chase Lucas from his starting cornerback position. Again, we haven't said anything to date to suggest that's possible, but the next seven or so sessions could perhaps paint a different picture. But other than that, I just feel that the two deep is pretty established there and really looking even more ahead to fall camp. It'll be interesting to see if, some of the newcomers there can establish their own niche in the rotation. Last land defense talking about the safeties and the real development we've seen over here is Ashari Croswell, who as a true freshman last year came on very strong in the last half of the season, actually switching places with Evan Fields and playing at the Tillman position and has done generally well over there. And I would say at the same time, Evan Fields doesn't look 
out of place playing at safety. Cam Phillips, who definitely showed a lot of flashes last year until he was injured late in the year, has been uh, playing also well at the other safety position for for Arizona State. The backups here have been Lexon Frederick and KJ Jarrell. Have been just fine. I don't think that they're a serious challenge to unseat any of the starters. And really, come fall camp, they should definitely be concerned, I feel, with a crop of newcomers that, that has a good chance to unseat them as reserves. But going back just to what we've seen in spring practice, Really can't say enough about Ashari Quazo and how, how he's redefined his body in such a short short period of time. I mean, it seems like even though the bowl game was just two months ago, it seems like he really has done a great job in the weight room just adding bulk and really looking like a safety who can deliver the punishment along with complimenting, I should say, his his really good coverage skills, too. So, Ashari Quazo, I think, is one player in defense that there's plenty to be excited about in 2019 and beyond. I guess maybe the only storyline over here at safety is to see if Tyler Wiley does feel comfortable enough to actually participate in 11-11 reps. I mean, right now he's just doing 7-on-7 ones. He has been a a little ahead of schedule from his rehab, from his broken ankle. Danny Gonzalez, defensive coordinator, said that he's challenging Tyler Wally to really overcome the mental hurdle, if you will, playing with a metal plate in his ankle even joke that he's throwing balls at his ankle and engage in other methods just just to really strike that fear from Wiley playing 11-11. So I don't know if we'll see him sometime in the spring actually take those reps. We'll have to wait until fall camp. And I also feel that eventually Ashari Quaswell and Evan Fields will go back to their natural positions, and really we're going to see the battle that kind of ensued a little bit last year in fall camp, where it was Evan Fields and Tyler Wiley battling for the starting Tillman safety position. But uh, I would say so far, the Bethesda Quazwell and Evan Fields have been playing well, whether it's playing Tillman or, or playing the safety position. And overall, I think it's just an a running theme throughout the defensive back group that just have a lot of returning experience, especially compared to other positions on the team. And that's something that really should manifest itself in elevated play in 2019. So that concludes our football talk of today's podcast. Let's talk some hoops now. Mama Mavis, oh, mama, they try my patience. It's gone. Who was left to save us? 
we mourn I'm praying for my neighbors They say the devil's at work And f*** is calling favors You say I'm dangerous I speak for the nameless I fly with the vultures I be with them bangers If change don't come Then the change won't come If the bands make them dance Then the rain gon' come Am I passing the truth the light? Looking to your eyes All the world is out of your There's little doubt that following or covering this ASU basketball team can be exhausting, frustrating. I don't know whatever word I can use that won't be repetitive to all the adjectives that myself and I'm sure many others have described this team this year. After a 77-73 loss at Colorado on Wednesday, a game that I thought Sun Devils definitely let slip away after having a pretty solid first half and beginning the second half on a good note. Come back on Saturday night. Not the easiest of venues playing in Salt Lake City facing the Utes. Nonetheless, the Utes only led 38 seconds of this game. Arizona State, down to nothing, went on an 11-0 run, and never looked back. Absolute domination by Arizona State. Surprising or not surprising after playing pretty poorly in the second half against Colorado? I guess I'll, I'll leave that up for you guys to decide. We've seen it many times before. I don't, know if, I don't know if we'll see it many times again as the season comes down the home stretch over here. But nonetheless, Arizona State wins 98-87. Rob Edwards, who had a very poor shooting night against Colorado, came back against Utah with a career high, at least in a Sun Devil uniform, 28 points, 4 of 6 from 3. Zylan Cheatham, who only scored 12 points against Colorado, doubled that output against Utah at 24 points, 8 and 8 from the free throw line. Something that's been an Achilles heel, not only for the him, but just for the team itself. Records another double-double with uh, 24 points and 10 rebounds. Double figures also for Lugan Stort with 17 points. Remy Martin, 16 points, 5 assists. The 98 points that Arizona State scored was the most the Sun Devils scored in regulation this year. They scored more than that in... Uh, the double overtime game against Cal State Fulton to begin the season, as well as against Arizona at the end of at the end of January. But 98 points in regulation is no small feat at all, and good to see Arizona State really utilize the arsenal of weapons that it has at its disposal this year to win a game that uh, I hate to overuse the must-win moniker, but. After playing so poorly against Colorado, the last thing they wanted to do is be swept by the Utes. Something that could really effectively knock them out the NCAA tournament picture. I mean, right now, I would say Arizona State is firmly holding it onto that last four in, which would mean a return trip to Dayton, as they did last year, for that so-called play-in game. Wins against Stanford and California this week could probably elevate them 
to being the last four teams with a bye, in other words, avoiding that playing game in Dayton. So it's obviously a more desirable position to be in, even though, if you recall, Syracuse, who beat ASU in Dayton in that playing game, actually went on and advanced to the Sweet 16. But nonetheless, Arizona State definitely needed a boost of confidence after the loss to Colorado, which did come after a very impressive win against Washington, which you thought would boost their confidence. And that win against Washington came after an an inexplicable loss to Washington State at home. So uh, you really can't stress enough how inconsistent this team has been. And can they be consistent down the stretch to possibly secure an at-large bid by the end of the regular season, maybe giving themselves that margin of error to lose in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament, a venue which we mentioned many times before, has not been kind to the Sun Devils. That is really the question that Arizona State faces right now. Because I think in the next five games, two of them at home, the last three on the road, if Arizona State suffers at least two losses, let alone more than that, they will have to win the Pac-12 tournament in order to get into the NCAA tournament. I firmly believe that if Arizona State finished the Pac-12 regular season with 11 or less conference wins, then even winning two, three games in the Pac-12 tournament, and this is obviously assuming that they would have to play on Wednesday, being ranked fifth or lower in the conference, that even winning two, three games in that tournament will not be enough to put them into the NCAA tournament, even if it was the last four in playing in Dayton in the first round. So in a nutshell, a team that has split every two-game series but one, which was against the Oregon schools, which they swept, if that team continues on that same pattern, they simply will have to win the Pac-12 tournament in order to be part of March Madness in back-to-back years. A feat that hasn't been achieved as it is by any ASU team since the early 80s. Your guess is as good as mine if Arizona State can finally find consistency. And I think the upcoming home series against Cal and Stanford, definitely not two of the juggernauts of the Pac-12, especially when it comes to Cal, who's dead last right now in the conference, can be the second two-game series that Arizona State will win. But the last three games of the regular season at Oregon, at Oregon State, at Arizona, definitely looks like a daunting task. And even if Arizona State were to win their last two home games of the regular season, I don't know if you can say with any measure of good confidence that Arizona State can even win two of the last three games of the regular season, let alone win all three of them. I think the question marks that showed up against Colorado, against Washington State, do negate wins against Washington and at Utah. And the recipe for Arizona State to win has been there all year long. Arizona State has won the rebound battle 20 out of 25 games. 
and the game against Utah was no different. They out-rebounded the Utes 35-29, 12-9 on the glass. Second chance points, which obviously is a, is a direct reflection of a rebounding. Arizona State won that battle 18-8. The one thing that was really interesting, I feel, that Arizona State usually outscores its opponent's bench. But for whatever reason, the Utah starters didn't come to play, but their bench sure did. Because the Utes had a 41-7 advantage in that department. Obviously, it didn't mean a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. Arizona State, more than anything against Utah, really stepped on the throat of their opponent. Did not let them really back in the game at all. I think the smallest margin throughout the game was five points. And Arizona State scoring 51 points in the second half is definitely a tribute to them really being consistent in their play, especially on, on the offensive end. Utah actually shot a good percentage at 54%, but Arizona State shooting 54% themselves obviously negated that factor over there. Um, again, it was good to see players like Zylan Cheatham and, and Rob Edwards bounce from pretty rough outings against Colorado. Remy Martin continues to be a really a really good scorer in the last few games and not sacrificing sacrificing his assist numbers. Has had one turnover for the game. And that's probably another thing I should mention. Arizona State committed 10 turnovers for the night, a low number that in any contest, but more importantly, only had four turnovers in the second half. So in that stretch where they really had to secure that win, keep the keep the deficit large enough for Utah not to come back, they did a great job handling the ball. Uh, Lugens Dortz uh, scoring 17 points, having five rebounds, I think shows that maybe he's starting to come around and we're seeing, seeing more of the Lugens Dortz that we saw in the month of November rather than the one that we saw in that really rough stretch in December and January. Another stat that really jumps off the page for Arizona State, 20 out of 24 from the line, 17 out of 19 in the second half, by far the best free throw display by Arizona State and doing it down the road uh, is even more amazing, I think, in that vein. And as I mentioned in my opening segment, a very poorly officiated game. Arizona State whistled for 26 fouls. Utah whistled for 21 Utah was in the bonus in the last 16 minutes of the second half. That is something that is simply unheard of, even in the Pac-12 with all the officiating issues that this conference has. Luckily for Arizona State, uh, they got to see, they got to be on the other side of the coin for a change in a poor free throw shooting night. Arizona State only had 24 free throw attempts. Utah had 36. But they only converted 23 of them. We're only 20 of 30 in the second half. So imagine that. Not only the, not only the Utah have 36 free throw attempts, but 30 of them came in the second half. You would think that would be a recipe for a comeback, especially for a team playing at home. And Arizona State still was able to protect 
this uh, advantage that they had all throughout the game, like I said, from 30 se- 38 seconds on. But obviously Utah did their part, so to speak, missing 13 free throws, 10 of them in the second half. That always helps over there. So as mentioned, you just really don't know what to make of this Arizona State team. And I know I'll probably sound like a broken record, and I know others are saying the same every week in Pac-12 play. But the inconsistency is only is only consistent trait that Arizona State is showing right now. And when looking at their chances of making a return visit to the, to the NCAA tournament, that really does not bode well at all. Uh, Again, I do expect them to win the next two home games against Cal and against Stanford, but that road trip to Oregon and then the week after that playing at Arizona, and I know the Oregon and Arizona are going through a rough stretch right now. Oregon State is playing really well. Actually, one of the teams that Arizona State is going to battle to be in second place at the end of the regular season, let alone just being in that top four, which is going to enjoy a first-round bye in the Pac-12 tournament. And if Arizona State has any aspirations of winning that Pac-12 tournament, their chances would increase if they did have that bye and just started playing on Thursday instead of starting playing on Wednesday. But all in all, it's just really hard to project what Arizona State can can do down the stretch. And like I said, even if, even if they did win Cal and Stanford next week, I can't sit here a week from today and feel even more confident about Arizona State's chances of having a strong finish to conference play. But give credit for Bobby Hurley's squad bouncing back from a really rough night at Colorado and being as dominant as they were against Utah. Can they bottle that up just like the win against Washington, just like the win against Arizona, and have that performance, that type of performance come to light in other games later in the year? History will show you that the answer is no, but maybe Arizona State is willing to defy the predictions and the patterns in a very positive way. If you're traveling down to the North Country Fair Winsted heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there She once was a true love of mine So as we enter the last segment of this podcast, this is where I will answer your questions both posted on my premium message board, Devil's Huddle. And if you're not already subscribed, I would encourage you to please join our community of ASU fans. Lots of live, lively yet civil discussion going on on various Sun Devil sports topics. And if you liked what you heard from me in the podcast, then you'll like to hear and read more of me in my premium message board, Devil's Huddle. First question comes from Patton42. Basketball question, Rob Edwards is really starting to gain confidence in scoring the ball. Is his game against Utah more or less what was expected from him any given night when he got to Tempe running Bobby Hurley's scheme? Or is his ceiling even higher? Is his back injury completely healed or is it still bothering him a bit? 
I'll answer the second question first. I think that the back injury may not be 100% healed, but obviously somewhere in the upper 80s, lower 90s, because I don't think that Rob Edwards with a significantly ailing back at 60-70% would go out and score 28 points last night against Utah, for example. For those that attend the games or maybe watch it on TV, you will notice that he does wear a back brace when he does head, head over to the bench. So you could definitely chalk that up to just a measure of precaution. But then again, if he was 100% healthy with his back, I kind of doubt that you would see that measure being applied on any given night. But concerning what we can expect from Bob Edwards, I don't know if he really, he really hit his ceiling. He definitely is more of a streaky shooter. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there have been some nights where he has come as advertised. Somebody that both myself and Bobby Hurley, for that matter, thought would be the leading scorer for the Sun Devils this season. That's obviously not going to happen. He had way too many peaks and valleys this season to achieve that feat. But nonetheless, he is somebody that still averages in double figures and somebody that can be a huge component for Arizona State uh, down the road. So I think that the better days of Rob Edwards are still ahead of him. Just like with the rest of the team, consistency is going to be key. Had a horrible game against Colorado, scored, I believe, four or six points. Then comes back against Utah four nights later and scores 28. So the question that you asked of Rob Edwards is pretty a question you could ask of every player you expect to be a contributor on this team. Who is the real Rob Edwards? Or who is the real Arizona State team for that matter? We just don't know at this point. Like I said, there's been a lot of yin and yang with this squad, and Rob Edwards is probably one of the best examples of that. So I don't think he hit his ceiling. The bigger question in my mind, will he hit the consistency level that you expect him to hit against Cal and Stanford this week? I think he has an excellent opportunity to build on his performance against Utah. But for him and for the rest of the squad, as I mentioned, a very stringent test on the road, playing the last three games away from Tempe at the Oregon schools and at Arizona. And if Rob Edwards excels in that stretch of contest, if Arizona state comes out winning two of two of those three games, let alone sweeping all of those contests, then you definitely are going to see the Rob Edwards we'll expect it to see in the preseason. The next question comes from Sundova alum 77. How far is it from the earth to the moon? I don't know, buddy. Don't have time to Google that one. But uh, when you do have an answer, come back at me with that one. <laughs> uh, next uh, question comes from Ticap. Is Notre Dame baseball still a Division One program? Um, as I'm recording this podcast, I think uh, the Irish are down uh, 10 to 3 going into the six. Obviously, got dominated the first two contests against Arizona State, a squad that came in with very low expectations into the season. So uh, on paper, yes, Notre Dame is Division One <laughs> program, but uh, they're definitely not showing against Arizona State this weekend, much to the delight of Sun Devil fans, I'm sure. The next question comes from 
Cade Jahari for 2020 Arizona Town preview of the prospects that ASU is targeting, which prospects seem to be viable for Arizona State. So I'm just going to hit the more high-profile ones that I know that, that can be viable prospects. And I'll start with the, the number one player in the state, uh, Keely Ringo, the defensive back from Scottsdale Suaro. Even though he did not list Arizona State in his top 15, which I understand is a broad scope as it is, don't be surprised if Arizona State ends up being in his top five in one of the schools that he's seriously going to consider down the road. It's just a really weird recruitment process, but you heard it here first. Uh, I think Arizona State is definitely going to be in the fight on this one. Then you have um, a pair of four-star prospects from Tucson, uh, Bijan Robinson, a very highly coveted uh, running back, and uh, Lathan Ransom, who uh, listed as an athlete but probably be a defensive back. Those are two prospects that Arizona State uh, has been on hot and heavy for quite a while right now, and I would still consider them viable prospects for the Sun Devils. Uh, Jason Harris, the defensive end from Gilbert, and as some of you may know, he really is somewhat a, a two-sport prospect, standing at 6'7", uh, 220. I think it's somebody that Arizona State uh, would definitely have a chance with. Uh, Brendan Rice, the wide receiver from Chandler Hamilton. I know he's somebody that has been showing Arizona State a lot of love, and I definitely would keep an eye out for him. Uh, another player that fits that description, Damian Sellers, the linebacker from Scottsdale Suaro. And uh, Jalen Jeffers, uh, offensive lineman from Scottsdale Suaro, teammate of uh, Sellers, uh, somebody, again, that uh, actually just attended Arizona State's uh, junior day over the weekend. Uh, Noah Nelson, an, an offensive lineman, uh, also somebody uh, that is worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Tate Romney, the linebacker from Chandler High School, uh, just because of the hiring of Sean Aguano, the former Wolves coach uh, here, running backs coach right now at Arizona State. I think that any high-level prospect from that high school is definitely uh, a viable prospect uh, for the Sun Devils. And last person I'll mention, another player that was at Arizona State's uh, junior day, uh, Andrew uh, Romery from uh, Valley Vista and Surprise. Somebody I've been hearing a lot of good, good uh, stuff about and has been uh, very much in Arizona State's uh, radar Somebody that can I can see definitely attracting a lot of attention from Pac-12 schools and beyond later on in the recruiting cycle, but that's uh, one player they should keep an eye on as far as a viable 2020 in-state prospect for Arizona State. Another question from Ty Cap over here. Which ASU Hoops team will show up on Thursday, it's actually Wednesday, against Stanford in Tempe? Will the students come out in force, or does Bobby Hurley have to scold them again to come and cheer for their own team rather than just show up to watch the other team come to the bank and play their own team. That's um interesting question, obviously, and I think all of us are curious to see if Arizona State, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, can really build on that win against Utah, or do they just follow the same pattern that they had after the win against Arizona and after the win against Washington playing game in their next outing. I'd like to think that maybe the light bulb finally went on for Arizona State. I think Stanford, even though they beat Arizona State earlier in the year, not being one of the heavyweights of the conference, 
is a, a matchup that can help Arizona State to get on a little roll over here as the regular season approaches it, approaches its end. So I have a good feeling about Arizona State sweeping the two games against Stafford and against Cal, but if there's another split, don't call it be surprised at all because, again, that's been the pattern almost to a T of this Sun Devil squad. In terms of the crowd showing up, I really hope that would not be an issue, uh, especially on on senior night, which would be Saturday, I'm sorry, Sunday against Cal. But uh, on Wednesday night, I, I really hope that the, that the crowd would show up. There's a good chance that it would be your last two opportunities to see Zylan Cheatham play at Wells Fargo Arena. I mean, obviously, if Arizona State does make the NIT tournament rather than the NCAA tournament one, that definitely could result in one or two home games down the road in March. But uh, I think just uh, to see Zylan Cheatham, Daquan Lake is another senior over there, possibly for the last time in Tempe, should hopefully be enough of an incentive for the Arizona State fans to come and show up. But just like asking about the consistency of this team, I don't have a definitive answer for you, and I think that nobody can really even supply an educated guess at this point as to what the crowd will look like in the game against Stanford on Wednesday. I would hope, again, the last two regular season home games would at least draw some of the better crowds we've seen in Tempe. The next question comes from Caterade101. Do you think Frank Darby will be benched if he continues to drop so many passes? I think it really depends a lot more on if Jordan Porter can establish himself as a starter, something that we really haven't been able to see at this point. But if Porter really has a strong finish to spring and Frank Darby doesn't really capture some of the magic, if you will, that he showed the first week of spring practice, then sure, that's a possibility. But um, Jordan Porter and uh, Jordan Curley, the true freshman that's going to arrive in full camp later on, are probably the only two players that are truly threatening Darby's uh, role as a starter. I don't think the other wide receivers on the roster play the position as effectively as Darby does as an outside wide receiver. And that's why I think that he doesn't have really much of a competition. But uh, again, if Border, if I'm sorry, if Jordan Porter really can ascend, if not later on in spring practice and to begin fall camp, then sure. I think uh, Frank Darby is definitely going to have to pull in his own weight in order to secure his own uh, starting job. And look, I mean, I don't know how much I would read into the drops into in spring practice. I don't think Frank Darby has been known to be a wide receiver that drops the ball that often. I know he had that one drop ball when Dilly Sterling Cole, ironically, uh, threw a great pass to him against, against USC on the road in the 2018 season. But I don't think Frank Darby really has any kind of tendency to drop a lot of balls. So... I'm just kind of really taking it for what for what it is right now. Maybe just a little bad stretch in the spring. And we'll see if he can't correct that in the last uh, seven practices. 
Another question from Canterade 101. Will Stefan Wright, the defensive end, be able to make an immediate impact since the defensive line has so much depth issues? Well, I think Stefan Wright, just by arriving here, is at worst is going to be a second teamer. But in terms of him being uh, a starter down the road, uh, sure, I can see that. Uh, it kind of remains to be seen if uh, Shannon Foreman is going to play outside or inside because I think they want to play Foreman inside and George Lee possibly outside. But whether it's Lee or Foreman lining up as a defensive end, I truly feel that Stefan Wright, if he lives up to his potential, can beat either of those players. So that's something definitely to track when fall camp starts in the beginning of August. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, he has an excellent opportunity uh, to, to make to make his impact. And just because of the thin numbers, as you mentioned, at the defensive line, I think really any player really has a chance to, to showcase uh, himself uh, uh, quite a bit, which is probably one of the reasons why Stefan Wright, highly regarded recruit at all, to decide to join the Sun Devils. The next question comes from Sandtown Devil. Uh, is Daquan Lake, this is a basketball question, really that bad of a matchup against Utah? Utah didn't deserve any minutes last night? I'm calling BS on that one. Um, as Bobby Hurley implied in his postseason, I'm sorry, postseason, postgame comments after the Utah contest, he said that uh, Daquan Lake, when he's ready to help the team, he'll be out there playing. So, for whatever reason, he ended up in the doghouse of uh, Bobby Hurley. I mean, that's if you're reading between the lines, I think that's exactly what happened right there. So, ASU was able to survive Utah without uh, Daquan Lake playing. I think they probably should do the same against Cal and Stanford if it came to that. Although it would be a shame if it did happen because Daquan Lake as a senior is scheduled to be honored Sunday when ASU hosts Cal in the last regular season game in Tempe. So I really would hope that whatever Daquan Lake was going through is now behind him and that uh, he can be a contributor again on the team. I think that he definitely saw some flashes here and there, uh, although I think Romello White, maybe unlike last year, especially during Pac-12 play, has uh, clearly outplayed Daquan Lake. But uh, Lake is definitely a player that can fulfill a role down the road for the Sun Devils. I, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be somebody I would dismiss right off the bat as being insignificant, whether he does play or not. And hopefully for Arizona State and Daquan Lake, being a senior, he can uh, definitely culminate the 2018-19 season on a strong note. The next question from our Devils Huddle comes from ASU PMAC. Do you think there's any chance that Lugens Dort comes back or Zylan Cheatham gets another year of eligibility? I feel that they've been our, our best two players. We need to take advantage of their time at Arizona State. When it comes to Lugens Dort, I know that his play has been extremely inconsistent. I hate to use that word every time I talk about ASU basketball or a certain player, but that's really the only word that comes to mind. But this question I've been asked a lot before about Dort and the prospects of him leaving after this year to enter the NBA draft, as long as the various scouts and scouting services put him at, at a first-round prospect, and I know that back in November he was a fringe lottery pick. Now he's more around 
draft pick number 25, 28, somewhere around those in that neighborhood. But as long as those projections keep on holding true for the rest of February and obviously the rest of March, Lugens Dort would absolutely do a disservice to himself coming back and playing for Arizona State in the 2019-2020 season. And I think it's a valid argument to be made whether Lugens Dort is even a low first-round pick, which, granted, you're losing some money being picked that low, but on the other end, you're obviously going to a team that has made the playoffs, maybe even contended for the title, depending how low in the first round you get picked. So it's not really a bad situation to be all in all, but NBA teams recruit so much on potential, maybe compared to other major sports. And I think Logan Stewart is somebody that is worth taking a gamble on. And if you start seeing him disappear from the first round mock drafts out there, then sure, there's some hope that he would come back, but I just have a feeling that his camp would definitely advise him to strike the iron while it's hot. And if there are consistent, and again, the operative word is consistent projections of him being a first round pick, then I could definitely see him being a one and done player for Arizona state. I think that would be the first time in program history, certainly the first time this century, but Right or wrong, Lugens Dort can definitely be that early departure to the NBA draft. Another question from ACP Mac, another basketball question at that. I'd say making the Pac-12 title game and winning a game or two in the NCAA tournament is a realistic expectation for this team. Do you agree? Well, I would say first things first. Let's see if Arizona State can make the NCAA tournament. And even take going a step back, let's see if Arizona State can make some noise in the Pac-12 tournament. The last time Arizona State reached the title game in the Pac-12 tournament, and I believe it's the only time that they've done so to begin with, was James Harden's sophomore year in 2009. And ever since then, Arizona State has not been able to win more than two games in that tournament. And... I would say probably, what, in 70-80% of the appearances since 2009, Arizona State was bounced out after the first game of the Pac-12 tournament. So, <laughs> for me to come here right now on February 17th to say that Arizona State has a realistic chance to win the Pac-12 tournament, I would definitely hold back on that projection. I would have to see a whole lot more over the last five games of the regular season to even make such a projection. If Arizona State wins four of the last five games, then yeah, I'll probably be singing a different tune. Not that we'd be surprised to see Arizona State win four of the five last games of the regular season, avoid that Wednesday game in the Pac-12 tournament, begin play on Thursday and get bounced once again, as they've done many times before, in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. That would not surprise me at all. But for me to even entertain any projections of Arizona State winning the Pac-12 tournament, 
like I said, at least in my book, they would have to have to win four four of the next five for me to say yes. Arizona State is definitely a contender to win that conference tournament. Now, what they do once they get in the NCAA tournament, uh, I think they have a realistic chance to win their first game. Absolutely. I think the second game is going to be a much more challenging matchup, which I don't know if Arizona State is at that level yet that they can beat a team that would be anywhere between a one and a seven seed, just to throw out an example out there. So we'll see uh, if Arizona State is really uh, up to the task. Again, you just can't stress enough that we don't know which Arizona State team is going to show up on any given night. And I know that folks are excited about what's ahead for this team as they start wrapping up the regular season and go into postseason play, but it's just really impossible in a lot of ways to make projections as to what this team is capable or not capable of doing. But again, the way they finish the regular season will tell us a lot about postseason play. And when I say postseason play, I talk about both the Pac-12 tournament and a possible berth in the NCAA tournament. Now we're going to move on to Twitter and the questions that came from there. First question comes from at vote Chris Romero. And I don't know if it's really a question or more of a statement, which you'll probably like me to comment on. One of the reasons we're given to explain the high number of transfers is that the new staff has this competition culture that isn't for everyone. I guess it is a question after all. Can you elaborate how that's different from Todd Graham's culture and competition? I don't know if the competition level is higher or lower under Herm Edwards than it was under Todd Graham. I think the caliber of players is better if you want to look at it that way. And I think it's only natural that the recruits that are Herm Edwards recruits are more endearing to the staff than the Todd Graham recruits. Now, obviously, you have very notable exceptions like Eno Benjamin, for example, or Kobe Williams and Chase Lucas. Because if you're playing at a high level at the end of the day, Herm Edwards doesn't care if his coaching staff or Todd Graham's coaching staff ended up recruiting that player. But I think the competition level is really just players that are just not up to the caliber of what Herm Edwards and his staff are wanting and expecting. Basically getting lost in the depth chart, being removed as starters, and those are obviously more than compelling reasons to leave the program. But at the same time, you're asking me if the culture of the Herm Edwards era, or I should say short tenure, is driving players away because it's different than the culture that Todd Graham established over here. And I don't know if that's really a factor that drives players away. I mean, sure, you have players not meshing with the new staff. But at the end of the day, I mean, you don't see, like I said, the, you know, Benjamins, the Chase Lucases, the Kobe Williamses, the ones not meshing with the staff. But you just see the players that have been, frankly, 
recruited over, if that makes sense, once Herm Edwards brought in his full recruiting class and are just not playing the same role that they did under Todd Graham. So it really comes down to more of a talent issue more than the competition right now is stiffer or the culture is different. I really don't think Herb Edwards' culture would drive any player away. It's a culture, and I said this many times, that's different than Todd Graham's where it's still stern, it still has a good measure of discipline, but it's more of putting accountability on you as a player to screw up rather than putting so many restrictions to begin with on you that sometime may affect the way and how do you go about yourself and maybe have you rebel more against the system. In other words, Hermitters doesn't care if you go into the football facility wearing a baseball hat and earrings, but he cares a whole lot more of not only your play on the field, but how you conduct yourselves in team meetings, in position meetings. I even show up to those meetings on time to begin with. Your work in the classroom. Are you showing up to each and every class? How are you doing in the classroom? Are, are there hearing complaints from your professors or academic advisors on how you're handling your business in the academic department? Those are the things that Herm Edwards cares about more than like I said, wearing a hat and wearing earrings when he when he come into the football facility. But I don't think that change of culture between Herm Edwards and Todd Graham is one that caused players' departures. I think always at the end of the day, it comes down to what your role is on the team. And if you're marginalized just because you're seeing other players in the depth chart leapfrogging you, then that ultimately is going to cause you to depart the team. Next question from uh, Twitter comes from at Penry 77. And this is a statement now, not a question. I'm sure of that. Very leery of the overall direction of the program players leaving. So, so recruiting, are we heading into era of mediocrity or less? Look, I mean, I'll be the first one to say that Arizona state's 2019 class wasn't eye popping, you know, being ranked somewhere in the, Mid to high 30s is okay. I mean, it's not horrible. It's middle of the pack when it comes to your conference foes in comparison. But as far as the players leaving the program, you're basically just, in my opinion, and in many cases, just lost warm bodies. You lost players that the coaching staff never thought would be even marginal contributors to the team. So I know folks are really concerned about the thin numbers, especially at a position like defensive line. But let's say you had Jalen Bates and Darius Slade over here right now practicing, okay? And by the way, some of those thin numbers also due to injuries. I mean, we have to keep that in mind, like a DJ Davidson, for example. But if you had Darius Slade and Jalen Bates right now practicing in spring practice, and they're not doing anything to distinguish themselves, they're not wowing you with one great session after another after another, then in the end, does it matter that much if they are or are not on the team? And I think that's something that fans just need to look at. And I know that 
even when the cavalry comes with the rest of the 2019 class, that your scholarship numbers are still going to be around on the high end, 74, 75. And that's a good 10 players below the 85 NCAA threshold that's allowed. But what are those players bringing to the table if they are on the team? And if they're not bringing that much, and if the coaches are being very honest and transparent with them, saying that you're not going to be a starter, and in some cases probably told the players you're not going to even be in the too deep, then I understand those players leaving the program. But the benefit of the doubt, at least at this point, for a staff that has completed this first year, has to be given that these coaching that these coaches are retaining the players that truly believe can help the program and are not just sugarcoating a player situation just so they can have that extra body in practice, knowing very well that this player is seldom, if ever, going to see the field. Now, the burden of proof for this coaching staff to recruit better in the 2020 and 21 classes, and those are classes that Al Logan Bull, the director of recruiting at Arizona State, said that this is where you should expect Arizona State really to make a splash. So that remains to be seen. And I think I would judge the staff more on those classes than the 2019 one. Now, if we're being honest here, if ASU wins only seven games in 2019, then there's a good chance that the recruiting class is not going to improve leaps and bounds than it was in its current, like I said, mid-30s position. I mean, sure, that, that is absolute possibility right there. But just like I was in wait-and-see mode when the Herm Edwards hire was announced and I wasn't making any sweeping conclusions, I'm still in wait-and-see mode right now as far as the trajectory of this program and how they're going to fare in 2019 and beyond. They can improve the recruiting class. I think they definitely have a very capable staff and infrastructure in place to do that. As mentioned, you may have to win more than seven games to significantly show that the caliber of recruits are bringing in is definitely high and more on par with the upper echelon of the Pac-12 rather than the middle of the pack. That, that, those are absolute valid arguments to be made. But I think there's definitely a lot of positivity in this program that you can build on. And I don't think fans should be discouraged by a 7-6 and six season mark in a recruiting class which is not top 25. I think both facets of this program can improve. But again, the burden of the proof is definitely on the coaching staff, but I don't think any ASU fan out there should be discouraged with the current direction of the program. And the last question for today comes from at Berto underscore III underscore. Is the ASU defensive line the biggest concern heading into the summer? What are some realistic expectations as far as getting transfers and moving personnel around? Well, the defensive line, I don't think really should be a concern. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that's because there are going to be some more bodies on this line. I would project 
right now between injured players, recruiting, incoming freshmen, they should see at least four additional players on the line. I don't think you'll see any personnel moving around from offense to defense. I already did that with Corey Stevens, the offensive lineman, Mark Walton, the tight end. And Mark Walton, by the way, has been sidelined most of spring practice as it is. But I don't think they need to move more bodies out beyond, beyond those two. So that's something I don't see happening. As far as getting transfers, um, I think you should look more to the junior college ranks and getting a player from there. That's a very real possibility. I did talk about that in the devil's huddle. So that's another incentive to subscribe to devilsdigest.com. But uh, as far as transfers, I think what you see in terms of adding transfers to the program is really going to be more than the offensive line position group rather than defensive line. For the reasons I mentioned earlier that in 2020, ASC was poised to field a very young offensive line and they definitely would want at minimum one transfer but really two that can bring that measure of experience to a position group that usually lives and dies by the level of experience that it has or lacks so that's why i foresee for for the defensive line again there's no escaping that the numbers are really really thin over there and just like some other positions on this team, it's just really, really hard to judge them in the spring between the fact that you just don't have that many scholarship players, that you have a lot of notable players that have been sidelined, at least for a good portion of the first half of spring practices. And in fall camp, the dust really is going to be more settled, if you will. The numbers of scholarship players are going to go up. In theory, the players that are sidelined now in the spring will be healthy, full go for fall camp in August. And that's where we can give a uh, true measurement, or true assessment, I should say, of a lot of position groups in Arizona State and the defensive line being one of them. So that will do it uh, for our, our latest episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Obviously, we would encourage uh, all of you, if you're not already, to become a premium member and subscribe to devilsdigest.com. We, we cover a lot of the topics that we talked about this podcast, but a lot of topics that are not covered over here, especially recruiting. There are definitely some uh, interesting developments in the 2019 class, which we talked about quite a bit in the Devil's Huddle. Obviously, we're also going to talk a lot about the upcoming 2020 class, Continue to cover Arizona State football, basketball, and baseball over the next few weeks. So there never really is an offseason or lack of news when it comes to Sun Devil Sports. So would encourage you to come and become a subscriber of devilsdigest.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town All my friends were vampires